If you've been coming this whole time, I really appreciate you coming. Uh, I know when Vern asked me to do this, I just kind of thought, you want me to speak at church? And I felt a sense of joy and excitement, but also a sense of burden. So this has given me just a little bit of a window, a little bit of a window into what the pastors go through as they prepare all the time. And, and the weight of that, I think, is much, much greater than the weight of teaching. So um, I, I would say teaching what I do for a living in a high school, right? So what I would say is we need, especially in times like this, to be in prayerful um, consideration and, and uplifting for our pastors and our elders. Uh, they have a hard job as it is. And in a time like this, when there's a lot of people that are hurting and suffering and confused and they have to navigate a bunch of really complex decisions, uh, we just have to really be in prayer for them. Amen? So um, what I'm talking about today, actually, is the fourth part of what I kind of felt called to discuss. Uh, when Vern asked me to do this series, he basically said, well, you have freedom to do whatever you want, pretty much. And again, I felt really humbled to, to be given that freedom. Um, I heard a pastor say at one time uh, something like, thanks for the rope. I hope I don't hang myself with it, you know. I hope I don't do something foolish. So I, I hope that 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 is the case tonight. Uh, so the first week, again, that I presented, we talked about understanding the importance of having a biblical worldview. I cited Ravi Zacharias quite a bit and how he said that each worldview has to address four things, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So even if you don't have a formalized worldview, like a doctrinal statement at a church, everybody has a worldview. Everybody has beliefs that they hold about where they came from, origin, uh, meaning, basically, what the purpose of their life is. Morality, what is good, what is evil. And then destiny, where they're going, right? So all worldviews address that at some level, in some way. Uh, then in the second week, I talked about truth, how truth by definition excludes, how truth uh, ultimately is found in Jesus and in God. And God has chosen to reveal that truth to us in his scripture and his word. In last week, I talked about the nature of man, how man, being made in the image of God, has some divine attributes, but those attributes are twisted and corrupted by the fallen by sin, right? And the only thing that can fix that is not, as I mentioned, some psychology in addressing the flaw of thinking that all of our problems are syndromes. It is not giving people what they need or addressing some environment, what I phrased as dealing with stimulus problems. And then it's not in fixing some system, right? It's in dealing with sin, okay? So the last thing I really felt called to deal with uh, in this time was how to relate to authority and government. Now, that's a really, really complex issue anyways. But when we have a pandemic going on and rioting on top of that and a bunch of chaos in all kinds of places, it's a really pressing modern question that is very, very challenging to navigate right now. So during this time, I, I guess we just always would want to remember and look back to a point that I've been bringing up each time I've got up to speak. And that is, no matter who we hear speaking, whether that's Jeff or Vern or any other pastor or me or a, a president or the superintendent of schools or anybody, we should always be thinking, what's the biblical truth or what's God's truth in this instance? So don't take what you hear from me or even from Jeff, and he would agree with this, I think. Don't just take that just to be gospel. Weigh it against what the scripture says. 
because we need to know what the scripture says, not what some uh, person that's flawed says, right? So as much effort, again, as, as I've put into this or as pastors put into things or as our leaders put into things, we should always remember that they're subservient to God, that God is ultimately the authority above them, right? And we know that truth, like God reveals his truth to us in scripture. So the three main texts that I want to address today uh, in laying out our discussion on authority and government are Matthew 22, 15 through 21, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Romans 13, 1 through 7. So again, it would be Matthew 22, and they'll be at the top on, on each of these. Uh, Matthew 22, 15 through 21, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Romans 13, 1 through 7. Now, Matthew 22 has to do with uh, basically rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The heading in uh, the NIV says, paying the imperial tax to Caesar. You know how if you read through Bibles, they have little headings that are kind of designed to make us or help us understand what the scripture is talking about? Those headings weren't in the original text. You'll notice how some translations like differ on what the heading is. Uh, so it just is there kind of as a guide to kind of break up our, our ideas a little bit. So I'm going to read from uh, Matthew 22, 15 through 21, and then stop and break it down a little bit here. Uh, Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Uh, some translations say, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God's. So this is not simply talking about money here. This is talking about other things, right? And we'll see that in, in other scripture that we'll look at today. So that leaves us with a question. Uh, I, sh I guess I should read uh, verse 22 also uh, to bring up the next point when it says in 22, when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. So Jesus has this knack for asking questions to get people to understand what the truth is, right? And then to bring up analogies and speak in parables to get really at the heart of the point. Now here, Jesus doesn't just directly say, yes, it's right to pay the tax, and then leave it at that, right? He's trying to teach us and get us to think a little bit more about stuff here. So the question, I guess, that we have to ask here is, what is Caesar's? Because it says, give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's, right? And then the other thing says, uh, and to what give back to God what is God's? So we have to ask ourselves again, what is Caesar's? What do we owe allegiance to to Caesar? And then, what do we owe allegiance to God? Now, the principle that's being addressed here when Jesus says Caesar, he doesn't just mean Caesar 
like the Julian lines of emperors that started with Julius Caesar, okay, and then followed later with uh, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, and then so on, right? He doesn't just mean that. Caesar can be read as government, right? Render unto government or pay taxes to government, okay? Now, at this time, again, those of you that have studied history know that the Roman emperors weren't exactly, and this is understatement, right? They weren't exactly the most moral, upstanding kind of people, right? So when Paul writes in his letters talking about how to relate to authority, and when Jesus is mentioning how to relate to governmental authority, they know full well that the Caesars, the Romans, are not like this upstanding authority that's perfect all the time, right? They recognize that. So again, back to the question, I think, at the end of Matthew 22, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God, right? What belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? So let's start with answering the question, what belongs to God? What belongs to Jesus? Uh, looking at Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. And the heading in this section says, the supremacy of the Son of God, okay? So the supremacy is in like supreme pizza that has everything on it, right? Supremacy of the Son of God, meaning the Son of God is supreme overall in essence. Starting in verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Notice here in this reading how we see what is referred to as absolute language. All things, everything, all authorities, right? So we go back and we look at verse 16. Uh, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And here's the, the section that relates to government and authority, right? Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So Christ has made everything. It has been made for him and through him. And he stands supreme over all things, all authority. Now, this obviously is not an all-encompassing list that I'm going to read to you right now. But if you look and start digging into where authority is talked about in Scripture, you're going to find a lot of stuff, right? You're going to find a whole bunch of stuff. So I'm just going to cite a few different examples in Scripture that talk about the authority that Christ has been given, right? In Matthew 28:18, uh, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? Again, we see that word all, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We also see that in Mark 1, 27, unclean spirits obey his authority. He has authority to execute judgment. That's in John 5, 27. He has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again on his own initiative. That's from John 10, 18. 
He commands the weather in Matthew 8, 23 through 27. He has the authority to forgive sins in Matthew 9, verse 6. He has authority over the church. Jesus is the head of the church. That's in Ephesians 1, 22 and 5, 23. And he is sovereign over every earthly authority. That's 1 Timothy 6, 15, Revelation 17, 14, and 19, 16. So Jesus, our model, is given authority over everything, right? Remember those bracelets back in the day that said, what would Jesus do, WWJD? I still see some people wearing those, right? So Jesus is our model, and he recognizes that there is earthly authority that he is supreme over, but then he also commands us to obey that authority, right? So you can see this even um, that he recognizes it in his human nature, in his discussion with Pilate in John 19, 10, and 11. In this discussion, uh, starting in verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus replies, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Now, notice right here, Jesus doesn't reply. After, after Pilate says, uh, do you not know that I have authority to kill you or let you go, basically? Jesus' reply is not, you have no authority over me at all. That's not his reply. His reply in this instance is, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above, right? So when we study the nature of Jesus, uh, theologians say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? So Jesus, as part of the Godhead, existed for all eternity past in Father, as part of the Godhead in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Perfect harmony, perfect unity. And then after the fall, God fully knew that this would happen because God is omniscient, right? Part of the plan from eternity past was that Jesus would take human form and bear our sins on the cross. So even though God is, Jesus is fully divine, he's also fully man. And as such, Jesus humbly sets aside some of his godly powers and privileges and all that stuff to walk like we walked and bared our sins, right? So in this, Jesus does not say, you have no authority over me. He humbles himself in his humanness. So if Jesus even did that, how much more should we do that, right? So if Jesus even did that, how much more should we do that? So that leads us to the third main text I want to address today, and that's Romans 13. Uh, 1 Peter 2 also addresses similar things, if you want to check that out in 1 Peter 2. But Romans 13, verse 1 through 7, also addresses this. Um, and in my Bible, the heading says, Submission to Governing Authorities. Starting in verse 1, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but, those who, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. 
For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone you, what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So in short, here and in 1 Peter 2, we see that government has been instituted by God to basically do two things. To reward the good and to punish the evil. And by rewarding the good and punishing the evil, uh, the godly instituted authority of government helps to promote societal flourishing in which we can live decent good lives. When people don't submit to government, governing authorities, when people don't have an attitude of submission to governing authorities, chaos happens, right? And if you turn on the news or uh, read a few articles on the internet today, you can see how chaos is happening in a lot of places because of a basic refusal to submit to governing authorities. So, there's a wonderful resource that our church has access to. One of the things I've been trying to do in this series is to point people to resources. Again, we know Scripture is our ultimate resource, right? That should be what we're reading and referring to to try to learn about what God has communicated to us. But there's a lot of wonderful believers who have done things and come up with resources that help us to understand Scripture in a more real way. Uh, so I've been plugging this resource called Right Now Media. If you email the church, you can get access to this. We've got a little uh, password for it. We got it upstairs. We watch little kid things with our... I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a three-year-old. and So we do that at lunch sometimes. And uh, I've been referring to a lot of the resources on there too as well. Um, and they have a whole bunch of categories. It's really a good resource. And one of those that I found that's really helpful for me is called Look in the Book. And that's a resource by John Piper, who has a ministry called Desiring God out of the cities. And what you will see if you look at that is there'll be a thing you can play. And you can follow along. And as Piper is speaking, he kind of writes uh, digitally on this text. So it'll start like this, right? And then it'll end up kind of like this at the end, okay? But I really like it because you can follow along with what he is thinking and as he's writing really well. And he cites a bunch of scripture in his analysis. So when you look at, uh, again, Matthew 22, let's go back to that first text, right? The question uh, that I asked earlier is, what is God's and what is Caesar's, right? What authority does God have and what authority does Caesar have? And in short, God's authority is all-encompassing and unlimited, right? God has authority over everything. We saw that in Colossians 1. We see that over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And as strong and powerful as the state can be, the state's authority is limited, right? So back in at the end where it says render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. The stuff that we should render unto God is everything. And the stuff that we render unto Caesar, the taxes, the allegiance, all that that we owe to Caesar is limited. So understanding again that we submit and obey God unlimitedly and then we submit to uh, governing authorities but we don't obey them uh, unlimitedly. So that's a very, very hard thing to work ourselves around. 
Another uh, speaker that I've really appreciated lately is a guy named Douglas Wilson, who's out of uh, Moscow, Idaho, and he's got a podcast called Blog and Mablaw, uh, which I have no idea why he says that, but it, it's kind of humorous. Uh, they got one of those little pictures of him. He's this bearded, kind of jolly guy that has kind of a good sense of humor. And Wilson talks about how when we think about submission and obedience, we should think vertically and horizontally, right? So vertically is our attitude, our heart, our obedience to God, okay? And then horizontally is to other men or humans that we owe submission, obedience, respect, whatever to. So in relating directly and correctly with God, if, if our relationship vertically is where it should be, then this relationship should be fine, right? If something's wrong either this way or this way, ultimately, it's this problem. If we have problems relating to our spouse, right? So I was going to say, does anybody have problems relating to their spouse? But I won't make you raise your hand. I'll, I'll raise my hand, okay? So uh, if we have problems relating to our spouse, that is uh, indicative of some type of sin or misunderstanding or whatever. But it's primarily about like our heart and our attitude with God. We don't just start sinning against other people if we're in a right relationship with God. So we should primarily be concerned with how we submit to God, how we read his word, how we pray. And if we're focused correctly on him, generally things will work out this way, at least on our end. Now, other people sin and there's problems and whatever. But our focus should be this, not this. And unfortunately, this happens a lot in my life. I worry too much about this and not enough about this, right? We start worrying about work or the world or our family or whatever when we should be more concerned about our relationship with God. So thinking about, again, that vertical, horizontal aspect, I think, is really helpful for us in understanding how we submit and obey to people, institutions, the horizontal level, right? Understanding, again, ultimately it's about God, okay? So there's a concept that a lot of theologians use to understand this idea of vertical and horizontal, and it's called sphere sovereignty. One of the resources I've mentioned before is called the Truth Project. Focus on the Family put that out probably 15 years ago. It's a really wonderful Bible study series that's kind of DVD-based, and you can go through it. And one of the episodes basically addresses this idea of sphere sovereignty. And the idea basically is that God has created these different spheres, different institutions or authorities, structures in society, and he's designed us to operate in those structures in a manner that's going to promote the stability and the betterment of the world. So one of the problems that you see is that something has to be sovereign and standing above all of those spheres, right? And if it's not Christ, if Christ is not the thing that overcomes everything, the tendency is for something else to try to take the place of God. And what's the most powerful institution that's left if it's not God? It's the state, right? The state tends to be the most powerful institution if Christ is not sovereign, right? Um, there's a, a great analysis of this. Uh, Abraham Kuyper uh, who I think was the prime minister of like Denmark or some, some European country in the early 1900s. Um, but he has a little quote that really addresses this well. He says, 
uh, Kuiper says, Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermenetically sealed off from the rest, and there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Christ is sovereign over your thoughts. We're instructed to take our thoughts captive, right? Christ is sovereign over our actions, our heart attitude, how we drive, how we relate to people, how we uh, submit to government. Christ is sovereign all, over all of that. And if we don't have Christ as sovereign over all of that, our tendency is to put something else as sovereign over all of that. Something else becomes our idol. One of the convicting things for me over this time is how I have tended to put things as super important in my life that really didn't matter. So the example that I gave to a lot of people is, I remember in January, I had like this real, real struggle and it occupied my thoughts and mind a lot for like a couple weeks. And the struggle was, which wrestling program should I put my six-year-old son Jude in? You can laugh because it's ridiculous, right? So, and the struggle was this, I coached, used to coach in the West Fargo schools, Packer side, right? I announce all the home wrestling duels. I know the coach is there. I could help out a little bit there. But we live right over there, and Jude goes to school at Aurora, so he technically will be a Mustang if we don't move. And then we had been doing the Bison Wrestling Club, and I worked with them in the summer. And I felt this sense of, like, I needed to be loyal to everybody, and I didn't know how to do that, right? And I, I really struggled with which program should I put my six-year-old son in for wrestling? If that's what I'm, like, worried about, that's stupid. Okay, so we have to worry, we have to be aware that we have a tendency to focus on things that should not be so focused on. So anyways, that idea of sphere sovereignty, right? That there is going to be something that's sovereign, uh, and if it's not Christ, then it's going to be something else. And the tendency in the world today is that it's going to be the state, right? So then people tend to look to the state as being their God, but also their Savior. Uh, and this guy, uh, Andrew Shooten, I found him, a uh, resource from him. He had a, a thing called The Road to Tyranny published. He's a Canadian guy. And his analysis here, I think, is really, really insightful. So in his work, The Road to Tyranny, it's a, a short blog post, he says, without something, or more properly, someone over all spheres, Tension breaks out between the spheres, and a struggle ensures or ensues to see which sphere will reign as supreme. Now, of all the spheres, the state, the church, the family, the market, and so on, which one has the most power? Quite obviously, the state does. As the Apostle Paul once wrote, it bears the sword. It has nearly unlimited financial resources, it has coercive power, it writes the laws, and it has lethal force. So if God is removed as sovereign, who becomes sovereign? The state does. This is absolutely evident in every officially atheist country from the last century. The USSR, China, North Korea, Nazi Germany, and fascist Italy. When the state raises itself above God, then God becomes a problem for the state. And know this, as the state replaces God or makes itself God, then it naturally also begins to compete with the family, substituting itself for the family. Uh, Vern told the story last week about how we have a, uh, a member here, or a tender here, 
that was in Maoist China and fled. And when he was young, he basically came home one day and said, you're not my parents anymore. Mao's my father. Right? You remember that if you were here last time? So when the state takes the place of God, the state starts start to encroach on everything else. Uh, continuing with what Shooten says, and when we free citizens in a free country begin to think that the state will provide everything for us, not just national defense or a fair justice system as it ought to, but also complete and total health care, education, food, clothing, shelter, unemployment wage, settlement of petty disputes, and on and on and on and on, then we are looking to the state not just as God, but also as Savior. Now, there is a role for the state to have, to be sure, right? So I'm glad we live in the United States, like, but there is a line at which the sphere influence of the state ends. And if we don't recognize that, then we have problems. So uh, another example of this that I'll, I'll get into more specifically has to do with something that was on the news quite a bit from this Sunday. Um, and if you want to look up this article and kind of read through it more thoroughly, you can see kind of the arguments that he presents. But in this article called Christ Not Caesar is the Head of the Church, John MacArthur, who's a pretty uh, influential pastor out of California, basically is explaining why his church and the elders decided that they were going to meet and worship corporately against the order of Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. And in this article, again, if you look this up, you can read it. It's pretty long. I'll quote part of it here. But MacArthur does a good job of explaining this idea of sphere sovereignty. So quoting part of MacArthur here again, However, while civil government is invested with divine authority to rule the state, neither of those texts nor any other grants civic rulers jurisdiction over the church. God has established three institutions within human society, the family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional limits that must be respected. A father's authority is limited to his own family. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. And government is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. Uh, and if you read that article, he cites scripture over and over and over again, and you can see the argument he's making. Okay, so practical question. When do we disobey the governing authorities? And in short, I would say rarely. Okay? Now, we have to recognize, first of all, and, and I'm just going to read what I wrote here because I didn't want to mess it up. In asking this question, we need to recognize that sin is primarily about rebellion, right? We are rebelling against God. We are rebels. We are sinners by nature and choice. We look for excuses to sin. Ever hear the phrase, rules are made to be broken? Has anybody heard that phrase? Okay. A confused, angry 18-year-old in Beach, North Dakota in 1999 that stands before you today shamefully wrote that as a senior motto. You know, when they ask you, what's your motto? What do you want to share with everybody? I wrote, rules are made to be broken. Stupid. Okay, stupid, stupid. 
And I look back at that time, and um, I have a lot of regrets because I had some influence, you know, as a as an athlete, and you know, I uh, kind of ran with. It's a small town, so you know everybody, right? But I ran with a lot of the popular people. And when I was a senior, I was uh, vice president of the band, vice president of FFA, uh, co-captain of the football team on the homecoming court, uh, wrestling captain. Like small, if you went to school in a small town and you were involved in stuff, you were involved in everything. Right? That's just kind of how small towns work. So I had some influence and connection, and I look back on those times, and I'm just like, forgive me, Lord, and thank you that there's grace, right? Because I, I still struggle with the fact that I squandered a lot of those opportunities in some sense. Okay? So uh, this guy right, ha recognizes that we are sinners by nature and choice. We are fundamentally rebels, right? So we need to be careful in having a heart that says, in what ways can I disobey? Right? We need to have an attitude and a heart of submission, and we should by default obey. Right? That should be our default position. Further, lawlessness is dangerous. Right? If you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, the heading in that section is called the man of lawlessness, and it mentions rebellion, a spirit of lawlessness, a secret power of lawlessness, and the coming of the lawless one, or the Antichrist. Right? So we look at, again, watch the news, that looks like lawlessness to me, right? So it's dangerous. Disobedience is dangerous. Additionally, I would say not being under authority is a dangerous thing. In the Old Testament book of Judges, it mentions how in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes or in his own eyes. Proverbs warns about being wise in your own eyes. In short, us seeking to be the supreme authority in our lives is us seeking to be God, right? We want to put ourselves on the throne. We don't want to submit to anybody. So in asking that question, when to disobey, we need to seriously pray prayerfully in consultation with other people, consider that our default position is rebellion and sin without being affected and empowered by the grace of God to live a righteous life. So um, there's a couple resources I think that I'll point to also in terms of books. Raise your hand if you've heard of Wayne Grudem before. Anybody heard of Wayne Grudem? Grudem wrote a book called Systematic Theology that a lot of people use. Uh, about 12 years ago, he wrote a book called Politics According to the Bible. That's a super thick resource that kind of addresses a whole bunch of issues. Uh, another thing, or another source, uh, this coworker of mine that I really respect gave me uh, called Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee. So uh, um, and he recognized in me uh, that I have this tendency to rebel, right? Like, that, that's something that I struggle with. So he gives me this book, and he's like, you need to read this. And then I read through it, marked it up, and, you know, as in anything, uh, there's stuff that I disagreed with, but we went through it and kind of prayerfully considered it. And it pointed out very strongly to me, again, the tendency to, re to rebel in instances. Regardless, though, uh, Watchman Nee says we need to distinguish between submission and obedience. So in spiritual authority, he says, God's authority is absolute, hence we must give him absolute submission. That's our heart's attitude, right? Our heart's attitude should be absolute submission to God and absolute obedience to obey is to act, right? Uh, there's a song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey, right? So trust is the heart attitude, submit, trust, and then obey is the action. Uh, Watchman Nee continues, 
but to his or God's delegated authorities, we can render absolute submission, or heart attitude, but only relative obedience. In short, our default position should be to submit to authority unquestionably and obey as a default position. So God looks at the heart, right? Do we have a heart of obedience and submission, or are we, like a sin that I struggle with, looking for ways like to disobey? Okay? Now, uh, one scripture I think that really addresses this concept well um, is Hebrews 13, 17. Um, and it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, I should have wrote a note here. I hate when I do that. But um, I forget if this is talking specifically about church elders or all leaders or whatever. But I still think the principle applies, right? That we should uh, have confidence in our leaders and submit to their authority. And we should do that with joy so their work is a joy, not a burden. Because if it's viewed as a burden, it's not going to be a benefit to you. So down here I have a couple of little notes, right? Watching the news and looking at what's going on, and I've said this to a lot of people in our Friday morning men's Bible study at 6.30, so there's our, our plug for that. 6.30 a.m. we meet, uh, and that's been a wonderful time. Uh, but who, watching the news and looking at what's going on, is going to want to be a police officer or a coach or a referee or a teacher or a governor? Like, who wants to take on that burden? Very few people, right? Uh, and the fact that because of the problems that are going on in society, so few people are going to want to go into those things, we're going to run into a ton of problems as a society because of that. So I have uh, on there a softball example. Uh, I like to play softball. Um, my friend, I texted him a picture of my x-ray. I played in a tournament on Sunday and dislocated my finger. It was fun. And he's like, maybe softball isn't your sport, right? After I showed him a bruise I had on my side and I get hit in the shins and whatever. But um, the officials, the softball officials, they have tons of problems getting people to do that. Because if you've played slow pitch softball before, I know Sean, you have, right? Anybody else play slow pitch before? So uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that drink a lot of beer and then act foolishly during softball. And they're swearing at the official and it's, it's not good. Right? They're struggling to get officials to go up and do that. Um, I umped kids baseball for the first time last year, and surprisingly I had little problems with that. I was, I was pleased. Um, but I don't know if I would ump slow pitch softball. It just, I don't know if I want to deal with that. So when people have an attitude of rebellion, it leads to problems that affects all of us, right? So again, when to disobey? Answer basically is rarely. Okay, now there's some examples of that uh, that you could look at. One great example, I won't go into too much detail, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a Lutheran pastor in Germany, goes to the United States, learns a little bit, comes back to Germany as the things are rising in the 1930s with the Nazis. Uh, basically, some people arrange for him to get out. He's in the States for like 26 days, something like that, and he feels guilty, so he goes back because he wants to try to uh, stand up to the Nazis some way. And he gets involved in the Valkyrie plot, which was a plot to assassinate Hitler. That gets discovered. Bonhoeffer goes to a prison, eventually gets transferred to a concentration camp, and is hung by direct order of Hitler like 29 days before the end of the war. So there's a book called Seven Men by Eric Metaxas. 
Texas that's great. It's a short biography about seven different men. A lot of times those men are disobeying governing authorities, whether it's Eric Little, the guy that's the subject of the movie Chariots of Fire, um, the running guy, right, that uh, he ends up in a camp in China, uh, and so, or whether it's William Wilberforce working to end the slave trade in the British Empire, Bonhoeffer, right? Those are examples that you can kind of see here. Uh, but basically, if you remember three words that will help you to analyze whether you should obey or not, right? Sin, forbid, and command, okay? In short, we should disobey only when obeying would be a sin. So if the state, for example, forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, then we should disobey the state because their sovereignty ends at one point, right? So you can look at a couple of different examples from that, and there's a, so quite a few in Scripture. The prime example of when the state commands to do something that God forbids, that's often cited in Scripture, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So in short, Nebuchadnezzar the king makes a golden idol, an image, that's 60 cubits by 6 cubits, which is about 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide, right? And he basically says, whenever you hear music, you need to fall down and worship this. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, we're not doing that, right? They don't make us think about it. The scripture doesn't say they, like, go protest or anything. They just refuse to do it, right? They, they just refuse to do it. So then... What happens, if you're familiar with the story, right? Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons them and says, is this true? You read through their discussion in Daniel 3.16, it's pretty humble, right? They say, your majesty, they have a respectful tone in their response. They're not like, we're not listening to you, right? There's a very respectful tone in their response. But in verse 16, they say, our God is able to deliver us from your majesty's hand, but even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar has a whole bunch of stuff thrown in the furnace, gets it so hot that some of the people that push him in gets consumed by fire, right? And then God supernaturally rescues Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And after that, Nebuchadnezzar praises God and promotes them. So that's Daniel 3. That's an example of where the state commands people to do something that God forbids. We are forbidden to worship anyone but God alone, right? State commanded that. The people say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we're not going to do that. Okay, so flip it. So we are also to disobey if the state forbids what God commands. You see the distinction? So if the state says, you need to worship, okay, they're commanding you to do something that you shouldn't do, you need to disobey. If they're saying, you can't preach the gospel, you need to disobey, right? Because we're commanded to preach the gospel. So one example of that, there's two main examples of that that I'll go through quickly because I see the time here. Uh, and that would be Daniel 6, where Daniel, there's an order that basically says you can't pray to anyone except for Darius for 30 days, right? And Daniel, again, doesn't go to the authority and shake his fist, right? If you read through the text, Daniel's one of the top three administrators for Darius, the king of Persia. He was going to get promoted, and a whole bunch of people didn't like that. So they convinced Darius to pass this law. When Daniel hears this, he goes home to where the window is open towards Jerusalem, so he doesn't try to hide it, and he prays three times a day just as before. 
doesn't make us think about it, he just goes and does it. So then he gets reported by some of the people that didn't like him. Darius, in kind of a sad attitude, is basically like, well, I have to go with what the law is. I, I don't really want to, but I have to. Puts Daniel in the lion's den. And then the next day, Daniel's still alive. And Darius is happy. And then he throws all the people that accuse him in the lion's den instead, right? Now, the other example from the New Testament is Acts 4 and 5, where they've been forbidden to do what God commands. Um, in short, they're preaching the gospel in the temple. They get thrown in prison. They get called before the Sanhedrin, and they're like, quit preaching. In Acts 4.19, Peter and John reply, judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than men. And then they go preach some more. Then in Acts 5, they get put in prison again. Uh, the angel of the Lord lets them out supernaturally and commands them to go back in the temple and start preaching again. They start preaching again. The Sanhedrin comes back and looks for them. They're like, where are these guys we've put in prison? People tell them they're out preaching again. So they go out and they're like, what are you guys doing? We told you not to preach anymore. And then the response of the apostles is, we must obey God rather than men. So they meet and they want to kill him, the Sanhedrin. And one uh, elder of the Sanhedrin basically says, we probably shouldn't kill him. Uh, if this is from God, it'll continue to be successful. But if it's from men, it'll fail. So they beat them. The apostles rejoice because they're counted worthy to be beaten. And then they go out, and at the end it says, in verse 42 of Acts 5, day after day, in temple and in household, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that is in Jesus Christ. So in those instances, again, they're told to do something. In the first one, they're told to do something that God forbids. In these other two examples, they're commanded not to do something that God commands. Okay? All right, two modern examples real quick. One. How should churches respond to a lot of these orders that are shutting churches down because of our pandemic, right? Has anybody thought about that a little bit? Okay, quite a few. Yeah, um, this is not an easy decision. So this is why I said at the start again, we have to prayerfully consider our elders and trust them and all that stuff, okay? So um, the, the news story basically is that John MacArthur in California decided to meet this picture is from their meeting this last Sunday, four days ago. So defying the government order. And in response, again, you can look it up and find it online if you're wanting to. Um, but he says, I'll just read one section here. Said another way, it has never been the prerogative of civil government to order, modify, forbid, or mandate worship. When, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar, Caesar himself is subject to God. Jesus affirmed that principle when he told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And because Christ is the head of the church, ecclesiastical matters pertain to his kingdom, not Caesar's. Jesus drew a stark distinction between those two kingdoms when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Our Lord himself always rendered to Caesar what was Caesar's, but he never offered to Caesar what belonged solely to God. Uh, so that's one modern example. If you look at China, what's going on in China today, uh, there are stories coming out of China about how they're ordering people to remove crosses and put up pictures of Mao or Xi Jinping, I think is the current leader's name. I, I could be getting that wrong. 
uh, if they want to receive some of the government benefits. So uh, what we experience in the United States is nothing compared to what other people experience in terms of persecution. Uh, one other example related to COVID. Uh, this was a Supreme Court case recently, actually. Calvary Chapel of Dayton Valley in Nevada versus Steve Sisolak, the governor of Nevada. In short, the churches were limited to 50 people regardless of the building size. So the state said you only can have 50 people. But casinos, gyms, and movie theaters were allowed 50% capacity. Calvary Chapel of Dayton Valley said we have a big enough church. We could meet with about 90 people and be a little bit under 50% capacity. Can we do that? And in a 5-4 to four Supreme Court decision, the Supreme Court said no, you can't. Now, because the Supreme Court delayed to do a temporary injunction, there's still a possibility that the case will go Calvary Chapel's way, but it's got to work its way through all the other courts first, and that would take a long time, right? So if you, read, if you go online, you can find longer opinions related to this. Um, there were three different dissenting opinions that were written, and I think Neil Gorsuch's opinion here was, was wonderful. This is the extent of it, right? Which is really rare for the Supreme Court. Usually their opinions are super long. In it, Gorsuch says, this is a simple case. Under the governor's edict, a 10-screen multiplex may host 500 moviegoers at any time. A casino, too, may cater to hundreds at once, with perhaps six people huddled at each craps table here and a similar number gathered around every roulette wheel there. Large numbers and close quarters in are fine in such places, but churches, synagogues, and mosques are banned from admitting more than 50 worshipers, no matter how large the building, how distant the individuals, how many wear face masks, no matter the precautions at all. In Nevada, it seems, it is better to be in entertainment than religion. Maybe that is nothing new. But the First Amendment prohibits such obvious discrimination against the exercise of religion. The world we inhabit today, with a pandemic upon us, poses unusual challenges, but there is no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's Palace over Calvary Chapel. So, in summary, we have to recognize that we need to have an attitude always of submission, both to God and governing authorities, right? We have dual citizenship, but our primarily, primary citizenship is in heaven, right? Is in God's kingdom, not as an American citizen. As proud of an American as I am, it bothers me when people say, well, I'm an American first, right? We should be a Christian first, right? Our relationship with Christ is primary. As great as I think this country is, we're not perfect by any measures, right? Uh, we should always have an attitude of submission. We should pray for those in authority we're commanded to in Scripture, and they need it, right? Whether that authority is our boss, a pastor, the president, whoever, right? Our default position should obedience, be obedience. We should only disobey if obeying would be sinful. And as always, as I've said each time I've spoken here, our authority has to be Scripture. We should be looking back at Scripture and using that to guide us. And lastly, I would say give our elders and our pastors grace as they make difficult decisions about how to navigate this stuff too. So that is it. I guess Jeff is closing. I'd like to thank you again for coming. I went seven minutes over. Is that okay? So, okay. Good. All right. Thank you.